Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of better strategies to inform patients on clinical research and trial participation. This discussion is led by Dr. Erfan Khan, CEO and founder of Trial Scout. He is joined by Dr. Alistair Lindsay of GSK, patient advocate Linnea Olson, Dr. Sanjay Sethi of the University of Buffalo, and Dr. Kelly Wade of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, well, thanks, everybody. It's uh, last talk of the day, um, and it's appropriate from the sense that it's the last mile. So we have a panel here um, of people who really spend their time in this space uh, thinking about the, the patient challenges at the point of contact. And I thought, I thought Cindy and, uh, and Ellen's talk before here, I, I didn't find it uh, uh, depressing at all. I thought it was a really clear-eyed look at what patient realities look like. So we'll share what it looks like uh, at the physician level, at the point of contact where industry and patients kind of intersect in that doctor's office, and what could be done to kind of change some of those conversations, and, and what's the path forward as we go forward in engagement. So how do we inform patients in clinical research and trial participation what are those opportunities uh, that, that we're exploring? So uh, uh, at the uh, uh, at the podium here is uh, is, a, is a great group to do that. Uh, you know, Alice Lindsay, uh, um, PhD, uh, Director of R&D at uh, GSK. Um, we have Linnea Olson, who's a patient advocate, I think, and that's that's incredibly important. I think to give us both sides of this. Um, we have uh, three physicians, myself included. I actually am a cardiologist, and I put in pacemaker, so I thought the talk from the, uh, the MDIC was great. I really enjoyed that. It uh, made me nostalgic for the old days. Um, Kelly Wade's a, uh, an MD-PhD and a neonatologist, so spends her time in a very intense uh, research space. Uh, and then my, uh, my colleague, Sanjay Sethi, uh, my other, uh, we're both from upstate New York, so we've both uh, had a significant weather improvement coming down here. Uh, and Sanjay runs research at University of Buffalo. So uh, thanks, everybody, for being here. And, and really, uh, I'll just start off by directing one part of the conversation. And I think, Linnea, I think it would be great to hear from, from your perspective. When a patient's in that office, what are the, what are the barriers? What does the beginning of that journey look and feel like? Okay. Well, I, I think I can just tell you um, kind of the elevator version of my own story to address that. I was 45 when I was diagnosed. My youngest was seven. I had most of my left lung removed, followed by adjuvant chemo. I was very much hoping I'd be cured. My cancer came back right away. So three years later, I had more than 33 tumors throughout both lungs. I was told I had three to five months left to live. And at that point, I also found out three months into the three to five months that I had an ALK mutation. And I was offered a spot in a first in human trial. And all my doctor could tell me about it is that one other person had been in the trial and the trial drug had in part killed them, liver toxicity. But I was between a rock and a hard place, so I made a Okay, I had to write this down because I'll get it wrong. But I made a benefit-risk analysis, <laughs> and I decided that the trial was the only way to go. So barriers right then, I, I'm not really addressing perhaps your question properly, but 
I just want to let you know that I have now spent almost 10 years in first in human trials and the patient reported outcome is good. I'm very, very happy. However, I'm also coming up to a clinically relevant endpoint because I have progression on the drug that I'm on right now with no next therapy. So that's, that's just sort of my introduction. My, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Kelly, do you want to talk about your work as well? Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, I'm sure when, uh, when Irfan said, like, oh, she's a neonatologist, you know, the newborn ICU really invokes great stress <laughs> among everyone, um, and it is a very difficult research space. But as a physician, I just wanted to share with you that really, you know, my passion and all of us in the NICU, the passion is about improving outcomes, particularly dedicated to extremely low birth weight infants and very premature infants. And that, that passion for best outcomes is deeply integrated into building a positive research culture in the, uh, in the NICU space or newborn ICU space. So I, in thinking about this after our call, I really came up with four areas that I think are worth thinking about. Um, that may not come to mind with the NICU. And one is that life in the NICU is a team sport. And we have to be on the same team. And fortunately, we have great shared vision. Our vision is simple. We want the best outcome for these, for these babies. But that vision means we have to work on the same team. And that means our families, our healthcare providers, all of us, and our research teams, we have to be on the, the same team, but we have a shared vision, and that vision is very clear to us every day. The second thing was, you know, the NICU operates in a family-centered care model, and for anyone who works in healthcare, you know a family-centered care model means families are encouraged to be present many hours of many days as often as they can. They participate in our rounds. We talk to them morning, noon, and night. We have constant education, and for these babies to have the best outcome, we have to educate parents so that they're one of the experts in their child. Um, so family-centered care makes it you know, easier for us. And then a new thing that came up that, um, that I really feel strongly about is, particularly, we have the luxury of time. Now, unfortunately, preterm babies are in the hospital for a very long time, weeks and months on end. But there is a luxury there, and it's definitely not lost on those of us who are there. I often meet families before these babies are born, and we start building relationships. We start sharing stories, sometimes before we even meet the baby. And we have this building of relationships to sustain us in the healthcare environment and promote the care for that baby and that family over weeks and months of time. And so we've heard it here at this conference over and over and over which is we have to build relationships and we have to share these stories. But the luxury of time also means I have time to talk about research successes for neonates. I have time to introduce more the questions that still arrive in our field, the difficulty of decisions that we're trying to make for babies, and the research, even research that may not be necessary for that baby, or the time of re introducing research in an iterative, ongoing process. So lots of healthcare workers will talk to families about research before our research team ever gets to them. And then I can assure you, after the research team talks with the family, 
they have a lot of questions, particularly of their bedside nurses and of even some of our ancillary staff for what really happens. Um, and so we all have to be versed in this, but I think that iterative ongoing process of research discussions is really important. And lastly, I would just say that you know, we ask families a lot to share their stories with us, particularly their hopes and dreams for these babies, um, and we build these relationships. But I have the luxury of sharing the research stories that have been in the distant past. You know, I did not participate in the surfactant studies, but I would love to go back in time and see what that was like because clearly outcomes have changed. But I also can share the stories of the research that I have participated in and what it looks like for babies in our unit and what we've learned and how we've improved trials and how we make them baby friendly with low blood volumes and more interaction and more education. I can also tell them stories about babies that participated in research and babies that did not participate in research and how we ensure that their care is optimized no matter what their choice. So, you know, those are just four tenants. And I think in terms of, you know, as a physician, I know we're not always the champions of research in different settings, but in my setting, which is not known to be research friendly, I think there's a lot of champions among all the healthcare workers that are working to get these families uh, involved. And there was a really nice quote. It was folks at the DCRI and the Pediatric Trials Network who asked me to come and help participate in this panel and their patient engagement, patient adapters model came up with a motto that was um, for better outcomes for all when patients partner with research. And I would ask you to ask your physicians and your nurses and your healthcare workers if the better outcomes for our all are also dependent upon better partnerships within your clinical teams and your research teams. So that was terrific, and that's that's actually you know because neonatology is so special uh, relative to uh, how medicine is practiced in, in grown-ups. Uh, there's some lessons there, it sounds like too. So uh, between Linnea's really moving sort of description of what it's like to learn about your option, uh, I think that's a good jumping-off point between these two. So if you're if you're well-resourced and you have the luxury of time, it really does seem organic that you can have those conversations. Um, the flip side is that in, in, in a lot of outpatient and in a lot of clinical medicine, often time is a barrier in that space. Sanjay, I'd love to hear you sort of speak a little bit about what that journey looks like in bringing clinical research into that, that outpatient uh, clinic practice. Yeah, I mean, there, there of course, we have uh, lots of challenges. Uh, so I think both from the patient and participant point of view, uh, from the participant and the physician point of view. So from the participant point of view, I think it's... Uh, uh, and I've heard a lot of stories today how the physicians kept on saying, no, you can't be in this study. Uh, that's not always the case. I don't want people to think that we physicians are always trying to dissuade people from going into studies. Uh, I think from, the, let me talk about the physician challenges first. And I think the challenges, as you mentioned, is time. Where you have the luxury of time, we don't. And so for me, when I'm, I'm an academician, I have a fellow seeing patients with me. I always make it a point. My last conversation with my patient is, how about research? Are you interested? If I was to ask any of my, we are a multi-specialty clinic uh, from the university, and if I was to ask my primary care to do this on a regular basis, they'll say no, even though they are part of the same university, because it will just add to all the other things they have to do. So I think that's one challenge, and I think that is something which somehow we need to bring that research culture there, somehow either incentivize them or 
or train them more. And I think that's what is lacking at the medical school level and the residency level and all that, how the importance of clinical research and how to teach them to communicate about clinical research. Uh, from the participant level, um, from the patient level, it's again, there's a lot of still fear there. So when I do talk to my patients, the first response almost always is no, or I'll think about it. So it does take time to establish a relationship of trust. And that's the other thing which I heard, again, in the last year and a half, that why do we need the physician in between? I think what you need them for is the trust that, and the relationship they have with the patient. So, uh, but I think one thing, there is still, again, the lack of education of, patient, of, of patients that clinical research is generally for their betterment. And there's data to support that, that people who participate in research overall their health status tends Absolutely. to improve. So I think that's another thing which we need to kind of educate people more about. Um, and then the other factors come in of economics and all that, uh, which also play a role in patient participation and, and, and research. Um, and, and, and again, over there, I think uh, it's up to those, you know, to some extent, up to the sponsors that we need to somehow factor that in, in the way protocols are written, so that you know, costs to the patient may be something they need to look at, and that should not be prohibitive. So those are some of the biggest challenges. There are others, but I think a lot of that, you know, when you talk to somebody who does it on a daily basis, we get it done. But when you if you want to really reach out to the universe of where the patients are and, phys and physicians are, there's a lot that needs, still needs to be done. That was comprehensive. And, and Alistair, I'm going to throw this over to you in just a second. So my, my background, so I, I don't practice clinical medicine anymore. About uh, three years ago, I uh, founded a, a clinical uh, uh, trial site network in private practice uh, uh, physician spaces uh, up in, in upstate New York with this very idea that we need to bring more than that 3% into the space. And then we built a, a patient-facing platform, Trial Scout, to, to try to make both those first points of contact and the last mile a little easier. So this conversation is, is pretty much what I spend my, my, my whole uh, uh, week thinking about. Um, how do we make that, that point of contact, that first conversation better? Alistair, you come at it interestingly. So I used to keep uh, MD, FACC, FHRS after my name until I, I finally got told it was way too many letters. So I just mm -hmm. broke it back down to D. So Alistair's an MD, an MBA, and a PhD. I'd love to hear your experience both being a, a cardiologist but also being part of industry looking for that solution. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Orfan, and thanks for the invite to be here. It's uh, certainly been very humbling. I uh, would love to give experience from both sides of the coin. My background is that I trained and worked as a cardiologist in the UK for uh, more years than I care to remember, about 20 in total. And then the last three years, I've been here in the USA working for GSK. And uh, you did pacemakers. Yep. Uh, I did interventional cardiology. And that, I just want to add to the mix of interesting situations to try and consent for a research trial. Because when somebody comes in with a heart attack, as you know, and I'm sure many of you know, every single second counts. So there's a dilemma there. How can I consent somebody for a research study? Because in the five minutes I do that, they might have a cardiac arrest and die. And there was one very interesting example I wanted to highlight in the UK. A cardiologist from Liverpool ran a trial called HEAT. And it was a unique situation. I have to stress this. It was two drugs that were already approved, were already in market, but nobody was quite sure which one was better. It was basically two blood thinning drugs. And so what this cardiologist decided to do, and got ethics committee approval to do, I should say, was he decided to randomize patients, just get on with the procedure, randomize patients to a procedure, and remember these are both on the market treatments that he could have used anyway, and then he went to the patients and got retrospective consent and said, I would like to use your case. Now interestingly, 
this trial was very controversial because it showed uh, a different result to what had been shown by randomized controlled trials before. But it was heavily criticized, saying, how can you do this? These patients didn't consent, and you randomized to something. How can that be right? And he would say, well, you know, both these uh, things are proved. So I don't have an answer there, but I wanted to highlight that acute situation. I'm sure it's much the same if you're doing orthopedic trauma or something like that. There's lots of situations in medicine where to get the right answer, uh, getting full informed consent is almost impossible. And what do we do about that dilemma? And I'd love to hear if, if anybody's got thoughts. Lenny, I'd love to know what you think. Just very quickly to compare and contrast what I've learned from three years working in pharmaceuticals here and what I've learned from uh, clinical medicine, mostly in the UK, although I worked here in the US a little bit as a physician, is that I, I, I'm really pleased to say that this issue of Getting good information across to patients about clinical trials is very, very high on not just GSK's agenda, but you know any good pharmaceutical company's agenda. Uh, it's in everyone's interest. It's a win-win all round. Uh, you, I gave a quick talk yesterday on diversity in clinical trials. If you get the information across about who could benefit from your treatment and what the trial will involve, then you're going to get the right ethnic and gender balance into your trials. You're going to recruit more quickly, and you're going to come up with an answer more quickly. Where I've found the difficulties tend to lie more is just in some of the practicalities and some of the logistics. I'm sure I won't get shocked when I go back to the office for telling you that we have one trial with a consent form that's 27 pages long, okay? Now, you're certainly not going to do that when somebody's having an acute myocardial infarction. <laughs> you're not going to read that. Um, and so we actually got to the stage where we had to think about abbreviating that, and we came up with a one-page abbreviation. I mean, patients were finding it too long even just to consider digesting all that information, and I can completely understand that because it took us months to write it and agree on it. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some things on the horizon there. I think things like e-consent are really exciting in terms of getting good messages across about what being in this trial involves. But I'll just finish with one final thing, which I didn't really learn, I'm kind of ashamed to say, until I moved from being a physician to industry, was just what an investment for the patient being in a clinical trial is. Um, and I actually learned that from a colleague of mine who is a son with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and she came to me and said, well, this is about a, a, the heart complications of, of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. You're a cardiologist. Can you tell me about that? And we talked through it at length and at length, and she finally went for the trial, and then um, 18 months later, I hadn't spoken to her a while, and she, she called me up and said, look, um, I really appreciate all your advice. Uh, I, I have no regrets about going into the trial. As it turns out, the trial was negative. And for anybody that's been involved in a, a research trial on the scientific side, we all know how disheartening that is. Imagine what it feels like if you're a patient. And that's certainly been a big learning for me. And I, I think, uh, be it on the academic, the physician side, or uh, in the company side, I, I think there are things there we need to start thinking about, about the support. It's not just getting an Uber so somebody can come to a trial. There's a hell of a lot more going on there. That is so well put. I, I will point out, this is the rarest of panels with both a plumber and an electrician on it. So <laughs> if anyone needs a pacemaker or a stent, this is a good, this is a good room to stick around in. Um, neither of us are practicing, so take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> you can do better. Um, but what I thought was great about this day, and I have to say the conference as a whole is just phenomenal. So one of the reasons why I was excited to come to this conference was because it was a chance to, to hear how the advocacy groups um, the people who are literally at the at the front lines are struggling with this, um, giving voices to the voiceless, you know, um, 
really forcing all of us to kind of look at our process and, and sort of holding it up. I thought the comments about uh, a physician refusing to refer a patient were haunting. I mean, that is really, I can tell you after 20 some years in medicine, I've never encountered that. Um, I had a group, but, but on the other hand, without any black hats, there can still be major barriers. I, I had a group of uh, 19 of us uh, providers. Three of us did clinical research and took it very seriously in a busy private practice. And extracting patients from within our group, patients who had basically opted in to come to this group and, and should have the right to, to all of the advantages of that group and bringing them into these studies was you know, difficult to say the least. And it wasn't because anybody had any negative impulses. It was because people didn't want to be associated with the protocol. They didn't want to be seen as a sub-I and answering questions on a study. So through all of these practical human behaviors, you can end up with major barriers for patients. And, and, and my friends in oncology tell me it's worse there where the, uh, where the economic realities have created situations where physicians are not consciously making that kind of, I'm not gonna send a patient across the line. But practically, that's what's happening. So, Lene, I'd love to hear how you first learned about your clinical trial options. Yeah, I, I have been very fortunate in that respect where I get my care at a major research hospital. And even at diagnosis, I was offered opportunity to be in a clinical trial, which I think is worth bringing up because at diagnosis, I had no interest. You know, a, a clinical trial scared me, and I saw no reason to do it. And, you know, back to my giving you my little elevator speech about my history, I think it's important simply because when I made the choice to enroll in my first, first in human trial, it was an easy decision. So sometimes it's situational. You know, I was going to die anyway. So my biggest worry was that I might hasten my death and make it worse for my kids. But at that point, I didn't have to worry about economics. I didn't have to worry about anything. And as time has gone on, everything has changed in my life. My, my marriage ended. My economic situation is different. I've had complications from trials, so I have potential contraindications that would preclude me from joining trials, it's only gotten harder, including the fact that there are less and less options. So, you know, that it's so much of it is situational and the landscape is always changing. Now, one other thing I can bring up here before I forget, because that's a side effect of all of the tre treatment I've had, it's my memory. But when we had our, our pre-conference call, I shared the fact that one of the personal costs to me has been the number of scans I've had. And at a certain point in time, I realized nobody was counting. So I got my records, and it was onerous. We have, um, oh, what is it called? Cluster fuck. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> it's, it's one of those horrible systems. And it's, it used to be that I could get all of my tests, you know, in a linear fashion. But I actually had to go up to the records room and sit with a little woman behind a computer who captured screenshots and then kind of collate it all. But as it turned out, I've had 60 abdominal CT CAT scans. Wow. 
and this is important because I don't have any cancer in my abdomen yet. I've had 42 brain MRIs. Again, no cancer in my brain, but I do have gadolinium in my brain now as a result of the injectable contrast from all the brain MRIs. And I've had 104 spiral CAT scans of my chest. So I've met radiologists who've said they've never met somebody who's had this many scans. And I can tell you that the background radiation is more than somebody who was at Hiroshima. So the personal cost has been incredible. And so in addition to just the hours and the parking and the money and all, everything else you jump through, that's a barrier too. So that's, that's moving and concerning, and it's the kind of thing that every clinician, you know, it's very easy to lose the forest for the trees, and that's a great example of why making very local decisions that seem to make a lot of sense and, oh, hey, let's rule this out and let's rule that out can have these kind of spiraled effects. It's, uh, it's, it goes to maybe the ancillary question here is, is what, what is the, uh, and Sanjay and Alistair, I'd, I'd love you guys to sort of share on this and then, then Kelly follow up with it, is, is what's, the, what's the right um, way to start the conversation in the room with patients about clinical research and, uh, and how, do we, how do we do better essentially at avoiding outcomes like that where, where a person can be, be the participant, be doing everything right and still have an outcome like that? Well, in terms of conversation, I think the most important first thing to say, at least that I, that's what I do, is whatever you decide about clinical research, it should not affect my relationship to you as a provider to a physician, uh, to a patient. So that's one thing we need to t teach people, because otherwise there's an element of coercion or other things that can come into play. In terms of, you know, in terms of the kind of what you described, that is a consequence to some extent that lies in the hand of the sponsors, frankly. Yeah. Why create excessively complicated protocols? And sometimes that may be shared with the FDA, I'm sorry to say, because they may demand, you know, precise trials with everything ruled out a million times. You know, so, and, and, and so all that gets translated. I, I'm, I'm finding my, the trials that I'm doing and the ones that come in front of me getting more and more complicated and more and more demanding. So why are we moving That's in that direction? That's consistent all the way across the industry. Yeah. The number of endpoints and the number of data points has yeah, scaled so, over the last five years. Yeah. So you know why why do that? You know maybe we need to kind of dial that back and start thinking about it. And one last thing I want to say is, um, and this goes to the diversity conversation today and all that today. Though I th find that a lot of the conversations and some people may take offense to this, but I'm sorry, I'll say that in advance. I always do that with the wife. Um, uh, is that the the uh, that though the sponsors have a lot of I see a lot of altruistic and wonderful things about how they want to bring patients in and make them more diverse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that changes and gets lost in translation once it goes to a CRO and comes to an investigator. The only thing I get is enroll. I don't get you know get some more diverse pe people. Maybe sponsors should have the same rules as NIH. You need to have 50% women and, you know, the minority that reflects your population. I mean, there's no attempt at that. For me, it's always a pressure, enroll, 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 and that's all that they care about. So what happens to all the diversity or patient participation or patient simplification? None of that comes through. So that's getting lost in translation because of the current ways 
and the urgency to finish clinical trials fast. That's a really interesting insight. Um, I will share that uh, that I, I take hope in, in the idea, and Alistair, this would be a great to get the industry perspective, um, that I see site selection um, opening up in some respects. The idea that people actually want some new to research investigators if they're surrounded with, with the right infrastructure to be successful. One of the advantages of doing that is sites that would never have been selected five years ago who have great populations, who, who have the who have authentic physician investigators who are from those communities who can have those, those meaningful trust-building exercises and conversations with patients that would bridge some of those traditional barriers to participation, you know, those perceptions of what research is and how it's uh, treated uh, minority communities over the last uh, uh, you know, five or six decades, what that opportunity is. So I see site selection as kind of potentially being a source of hope here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a great point, Orfan, and I, I am pleased again to see that this is something from the industry point of view uh, we are very interested in, and it's a real benefit of the big data era that you can now go, and in fact, companies tend to come to us and say, well, look, we've got this incredible tool where we, we can tell you exactly where this site is, how much research they have or haven't done in the past, uh, what the, the ethnic mix of the local population is so you can get a good diverse trial population. Uh, you can look at the socioeconomic factors. So I think all these options are now available to us that were previously not there at all. And it's really important that we start picking up on them uh, if we're going to get research into these nooks and crannies where previously it just didn't exist. And that's really key. Kelly, what's the most important bit of um, infrastructure support that, that your program, because you know, you're, you're, you're definitely a better resource than, than I was a, a few years ago when I was practicing it in outpatient medicine. Uh, what do you think means the most to patients and their families? In terms of research enrollment, I think I would go back to saying it's really the team, because our research team is actually quite small. Um, two research nurses, uh, a lot of studies. Um, but I, I, so I think I would say it's the team. It's that our day-to-day -day healthcare providers are doing a lot of the conversation. Uh, and there is a lot of follow-up conversation, and I would say that in terms of maintaining an enrollment and maintaining really a positive culture in the NICU, I think you have to continue the conversation after the consent. Um, families have a lot of questions. They still have questions. And then bringing in uh, a healthcare provider team that really believes in research for promoting outcomes, but at the same time is very comfortable talking about what we know and what we don't know and really the challenging decisions that we make every day and how much we need the research to help inform our care. But that's a very nuanced conversation. Um, you know, I don't like to talk about what I don't know, um, and families may not want to hear uh, how stressed I might be about a decision that I'm about to make in a small baby. So it's a very nuanced co conversation but really respecting that families actually want to know a lot of information, everything they can, and we just need to be more facile in having conversations about what we don't know and why we need the research so much. Linnea, if you, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was gonna ask one question first. Linnea, if you, if you, um, if you could recommend clinical trials, would you recommend clinical trials to somebody who is kind of at your, in your situation at the beginning of the journey um, back when you said that you had passed on it, what, what would your recommendation be on it now and, and why? Oh, I would absolutely recommend it. But, you know, the comment that was made about things scaling up, I mean, 
that that has happened where for instance all those scans that I talked about with my abdomen and my brain MRI none of them clinically indicated you know it was all protocol and it wasn't standard of care the schedule it was every six weeks so what I would tell them is to understand that when you join a trial you do do go from being a patient to a participant. So there is a loss of autonomy, but you have more sway than you think you do because I became non-compliant because of this and it put me at risk, it put my institution at risk. They did not kick me out of the trial, but I learned that I could actually put my foot down on certain things mm -hmm. because I had asked the sponsor for permission to have a different schedule and, you know, they wouldn't acquiesce. So I just said, you know, can't do it. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> do you have a question? Uh, well, I, I think I have a question. I, I was really inspired, Kelly, by some of the things you were talking about, shared vision and, and thinking about that in the NICU instance or in our pediatric trials, and I think we've heard some of that from our own pediatric center of excellence about shared goals. But, uh, but I also note that when we talk about severe asthma or heart failure, that we often talk about contrary goals. And so I, I sort of wish I could put you and mm -hmm. one, some of our chronic disease teams together and find out, you know, how do we bottle up some of that shared, partnered goals discussion and bring it into some of our other disease categories. <laughs> so I don't know if that's something that you guys yeah, can talk a little you know, about. Um, I think that's a great point. And I would say, you know, I have this personal passion that drives everything I do and really has this focus and this um, dedication to communication. I think some of it is the luxury of time. And some of it is we just have to confront, uh, and we are constantly confronted right now in the last couple years, that we need to learn more about caring for these babies. And even in my career trajectory, you know, over the last 18 years, care has changed. Outcomes have changed, care has changed, I can see it. I can tell you changes in the last two years. We, there is change happening. And I would say a lot of the research in the epidemiologic research and outcomes research has forced us as practicing neonatologists to go back and maybe admit that things that we thought were crystal clear are not as clear as we think. And things that I thought were the right thing to do all the time, very scripted, is just not how I practice medicine now. And so I might ask your chronic care team to share some stories about the changes that research have brought about in their field. Um, it's very moving to me in my field or to ask to talk about frank, safe conversations amongst even ourselves about what we don't know and what we want to be answered. I think that it's the linkage between research and best outcomes. And I think, like we have said with our patient stories, and thank you, Linnea, it is these stories, but we have research stories too. And they're in our units with our patients. And lastly, I would just say, because I love this part of your line that said, 
when I was first diagnosed, they talked to me about research and I didn't participate. And then later I participated and I have this goal that I just live by, which is never miss an opportunity to talk to someone about research. I mean, you could be having coffee with me and I might be telling you about <laughs> some research article I just read. I mean, never miss an opportunity to educate the public about healthcare, about research, about lots of things, but we have a big way to go when it comes to research, even when it's not a research decision right then. And that conversation may have empowered you to say yes or no. It didn't mean that we didn't go back and ask you more, but it may have laid some foundational groundwork to be able to allow the next conversation to move forward, having already left an introduction. So, uh, you know, most mothers are afraid of caffeine in pregnancy, and I will tell every mother I meet before I meet her baby that we will give that baby caffeine. Straight up, IV, caffeine, almost every preterm baby, less than 30 weeks gets it. And I'll tell her about the research that drives that practice. One, she knows what medication the baby's going to get, but two, Everyone knows about caffeine. It's in our everyday diet, so never miss an opportunity. And I think we can come together. Feels great. Um, we do have a minute left. I had a question for the group, which is just related to um, what what's missing uh, online for patients. which is very unique, and this is maybe irrelevant, but I still think it's worth mentioning, is that um, our parents can access outcome information by gestational age online, um, and those outcome calculators are outdated, and we are looking for an updated list, but I am cautious of what patients find online that is not up to date. Well, I, I wouldn't say it so much what's missing as how do you parse what's there. Yeah. But I also think we need to acknowledge that those horses are out of the barn. And when I was diagnosed 14 years ago, my oncologist said, don't go on Google. And it's the first thing I did, you know? And <laughs> I, I think it's something that everyone is going to do. Absolutely. So we just need to acknowledge that. Yeah, I'm going to say very quickly, feedback on the experience of what it's like being in the trial. I mean, if you go to Amazon, you can scroll down and see what other people think of a book. So when you go to clinicaltrials.gov, <laughs> why don't you have feedback saying, I, I was in this trial? Absolutely. And, you know, and it obviously is slightly difficult to curate. It maybe has to be independent of outcomes. But just what we've been discussing about the physical and emotional burden of being in the trial, can patients yeah. share that more easily? I think it should be done. And I, I would add to that, again, this is from, that was a great one from the participant point of view. I mean, from the physician point of view, I think your community-based physician especially, it would be great if you could, so when I tell my patient, this is your new inhaler, I don't have time to teach you or how to do it properly every time and I'm supposed to do it every time. Go to these websites. All the companies have great instructions on the website about how to use the inhalers. Wouldn't it be nice if I, as a physician or a community-based physician, could say, you have you know, severe asthma, Go to this website, they got up-to-date current information, potentially with also geographic location of trial sites, and see what's out there if you're interested in participating in research, even though I can't do it. I mean, as if, you know, I may not have the resource, but, 
But you know, it'll be nice to have those kind of resources right now, which we don't. Stay tuned. That was great. Thank you, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.